Good morning, church family. What a joy it has been to be with you this morning. My heart is certainly full. Uh, What a great joy it is to sing the praise of God, to hear the work that God is doing in another part of the world. Uh, Why don't we pray now, though, uh, and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Father, we want the Lord Jesus to be the king and the ruler of our lives. And so as we come to your words now, we pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of it by the work of your spirit within us. Father, we pray that you would use your words to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. And we do pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, who knows who this man is on screen? Anyone? 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 No, no one. What about Nicholas Copernicus? Does that name ring any bells for anyone? Can anyone tell me what Nicholas Copernicus was known for? Oh, come on. Sorry? Maybe. I'm looking for something else, though. (laughs) This man discovered in the 16th century that the earth was not, what? The centre of the galaxy. (laughs) Oh, gee. Gee whiz. You know, this is what is taught as commonplace in probably prep in Queensland now. But for the majority of human history, humans believe that the Earth was the centre of the solar system. Isn't that a human thing to do, right? It speaks so deeply to human nature that we love to think that we are the centre of all things. I've got four children and no one teaches them that they should think they're the centre of the universe. Oh, but they do. The important question, though, for those of us who call ourselves Christians is this, who is it that stands at the centre of your life? And I think that that's exactly what Peter is going on about and has been for the last chapter and a half in this book of 1 Peter. In the very first chapter, he said that you have been given new birth into a living hope. We are now the children of God because of everything that Jesus has done for us. We've been welcomed into his family. But the question is this, is Jesus now the one who is at the center of your life? Dictating the patterns and the priorities and the way that you go about your life. What we're talking about here is not a question about what you believe about the importance of Jesus. I'm sure you could all pass the test if I said to you, should Jesus be at the center of your life, you'll give me the right answer. What Peter has been doing now for the last chapter and a half is going through practical areas of the way that we live our lives and he's been showing us what it looks like to live with Jesus at the center. He's looked at submission to human authorities, submission to human masters or bosses for us, the relationships between husbands and wives, and in chapter 3, verse 8 to 12, he's just looked at living good and not evil lives. Is Jesus the one who is at the center of your life? 
Lifeway just published some research that concluded this. For 60% of evangelical Christians, God does not come up as part of daily conversations. I wonder what you make of that. For 60% of Christians, God does not come up as part of daily conversations. And then get this, for 40% of us, God has very little to do with the different aspects of my life, the particularities of the way that we live. Just think about that. Is Jesus at the centre of our lives? And in this particular passage, we're moving away from specific areas of life that Peter has been addressing to the broader motivation for why it is that we should live good lives. There's this very definite transition in this passage also towards the reality of the suffering that Christians will face, and Paul, uh, Peter will address that more specifically next week. But today the question is this, why should we be living good lives as Christians with Jesus at the centre? And the first answer that Peter gives is that we are to do good because you fear Christ. Look at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter has just quoted Psalm verse 34 where in summary Christians are called to do good, pursue peace, don't do evil. And then he begins our passage with this rhetorical question. Who will harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I wonder how you answer that question. Who will harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? I think Peter is thinking to himself, most won't harm you. But very clearly in verse 14, he knows that some will harm you for doing good as Christians. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You see, Peter here at this point is going to the motivations for why we should live good lives before Christ in this world And basically, he's saying to us, Christians are not to be glorified people pleasers. You see what he's getting at? He's saying, don't do good just because people like you. I've got a six-month-old daughter, and she has learned to do good things because of the positive reaction that her siblings give her. You see this in a six-month-old baby. She will repeat certain patterns of behavior because she knows that she gets roars of laughter from her other three siblings and her parents. Peter's saying, that is not why you and I do good. You know, I, I think that there's something in here for us. If you are only doing good because the world around you is doing this, well, Peter would say you are not revering Christ as Lord. Look at verse 14 again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Get this, verse 18. But in your hearts, honour who is Lord? Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope 
that is in you, yet do this with what gentleness and respect. You know, what you fear will dictate the way that you live your life. If you fear the applause of the world, if you fear the affection of unbelievers around you, maybe it's your work colleagues, maybe it's unbelieving family and friends, maybe it's your peers from school or university, you will live your life to please the world. But remember what Peter said in chapter, chapter 1, you have been given new birth into a living hope. Who is that new birth through? It is through the Lord Jesus. If you fear the Lord, Peter is saying, then you will live to please the Lord all the time. Who you fear dictates who you will live to please in this world. Peter is saying, don't just do good because the world applauses you. Many will. Do good because Christ is Lord. And notice how he says, but in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy. If you've got the NIV, it will say, revere the Lord or set apart the Lord, okay? It's actually a play on words that Peter is using here. The book of 1 Peter is all about living holy lives. The word holy means to be set apart. And here he is saying you need to set apart Christ as the Lord and master of your life. Can you have more than one master at one time? What do we think? Someone say no. It's a contradiction of terms. And that's what Peter is getting at. You can't say, the world is my master, and also Jesus is my master at the same time. He's saying, no, that is an impossibility. You can only revere one thing as the Lord of your life. And he's saying to us this morning, dear Christian, Jesus is to be the one who is set apart as the Lord of your life. So let me ask you, is Christ the one that is in control of the way that you live your life? Or alternatively, is it the opinions of our work colleagues, the affirmation of old friends, or the desire that our children would fit in in this world? Or is it the approval of unbelieving family or friends that you are craving? You cannot set apart multiple things to be the Lord of your life. This is a contradiction of terms. I trained at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. I have many, many friends who are now all over the globe, and I'm deeply thankful to the Lord for that. But there are numerous friends that I have who went to the mission field knowing that they would not be supported by even their family. Just, just think about the cost. I don't know the cost that these guys face. But they so set apart Christ as Lord that they said, I'm going to go. And I'm going to do it knowing that in some cases I had friends whose parents very specifically sat them down and said, we will not support you going. And at that point they had a question and the question was this, who is the Lord of your life? Who is it that you will fear? 
And in that moment, they revered Christ as Lord and they revere Christ as Lord every single day. And they say, we're going to go and do the good that Christ calls us to, not because the world applauds us, but because Jesus is Lord of our lives. And then Peter goes on a step further. There's a familiar verse that we all know well. What does he say? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This verse we hear commonly when we're looking at principles for evangelism, but little do we often slow down to understand that it's given in the context of suffering. I think that what Peter is logically assuming is that when a Christian says, I'm going to keep doing the good that Jesus calls me to do, even when the world doesn't like, like it, people naturally ask questions. Why would you keep doing it? Look at the suffering you're facing for living that way. Why would you do it? And I think Peter is saying, well, gently and respectfully explain to those who are asking questions why Jesus is the Lord of your life. Why do you live a certain way? Why do you revere Christ as Lord? I wonder if you're prepared to give an account for the reason that you fear Jesus as Lord of your life. And notice that Peter says that it is our conscience that should be the controlling factor in how we give an account for the hope that we have. What's your conscience? Let's look at verse 16 there. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You see, the the conscience is our capacity as creatures made in the image of God to make moral judgments. And when you come and you put your trust in Jesus, Jesus should be the one that is ruling over the moral judgments that you make. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you and trains your conscience. The Bible says very clearly you can see your conscience, you can wreck it, or you can allow Christ with the Holy Spirit to come and form your conscience. And Peter is saying here, when you give an account for the hope that you have, what is the right answer? Well, let Jesus be the Lord of your conscience and speak in a way that honors him. You know what I think Peter's thinking about? Who denied Jesus three times? Whose conscience do you think was badly pricked at the end of that? You can refuse to give an account for the hope that you have in Jesus. And while you might escape judgment, Peter is saying your conscience will condemn you. And that conscience will keep chewing you out. Peter is saying live for Jesus. Speak For Jesus, set apart him as Lord. And in verse 17, this is why he says, it is so much better to suffer for doing good than to deny the Lord Jesus and do that which is evil. 
to deny Christ is evil. And, and what we see in verse 18 and 22, I'm just going to say, are some of the trickier verses that you find in the whole of the Bible, but it actually fits with the context of what's going on. We're told that Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God, but then we're told that after being raised, Jesus went and proclaimed to the evil spirits that were disobedient when God patiently waited at the time of Noah. Okay, I reckon if you've read ahead, you're thinking, these are the verses that I want to hear what this guy's got to say. Now, these are not random verses. They are giving us reasons why you and I should fear the Lord. Okay, you've got to keep that in mind as you come to these verses. And other than the book of Jude, there is no other biblical witness about Jesus proclaiming to evil spirits. But according to Jewish tradition, evil spirits were kept imprisoned for judgment. Okay? And in this context, Peter is not saying that Jesus is proclaiming a message of salvation to these evil spirits. They are evil spirits that were kept in prison since the time of Noah. Jesus rises from the dead, the victorious king over all evil powers. And then he goes and proclaims to these evil spirits their eternal judgment forevermore. You see, it is because of the resurrection of Jesus that evil spirits and every evil power will be done away with in this world forevermore. And just as Noah and his family faithfully lived for God and were saved from these evil spirits who will be judged, we too can be absolutely confident in the saving power of the Lord Jesus. What is Peter doing? Well, I think he is giving us the very reason why we set apart and revere Christ as Lord in this world. You know what? Evil people are going to come and go in this world. Powers are going to rise and fall in this world. People are going to stand against Christians in this world. But who is the king that will reign forever? Who is the one that can rightly proclaim judgment against all those who have stood against him? Jesus. So Peter, I think, is saying, fear Jesus above all else. Just look at verse 22. It says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been what? Subjected to him. If at the end of the day everything is all said and done, all of the evil and all of the powers in this world are subjected to Christ, then who should we fear in this world? Jesus. Live for him and do good because you fear him. If you're a parent here this morning, can I encourage you to teach your children to fear Christ as Lord? T tell your children of the bigness of King Jesus. Tell your children that he is powerful over all things. And when they begin to be confronted by the oddness of being a Christian in this world, 
You tell them this. We live this way because Jesus is what? The King. You know, just last year, our eldest daughter goes to the local public school and she came home one day and she was, I wouldn't say upset, she, she was a bit concerned. She said, Dad, Mum, she's part of the school choir, she said, there is a song that the choir are singing and I cannot sing that song. And we went and looked at the lyrics of the song and it was using the Lord's name in vain. And it was a beautiful thing because Hannah had come home. She knows that we love Jesus. She loves Jesus. And very quickly, she identified that as a follower of Jesus, that was not something that she could do. And so we talked with Hannah. We prayed with Hannah. And we decided the right thing was to write an email to the school and express that we didn't think it was a great song to be singing for a number of reasons. But then we also just said, but if the school chooses to go ahead with it, Hannah just won't sing that song. So she got to the final performance on the final day, it was the last week or so of school. She sang one song and then she had to get down in front of the whole school because she wasn't going to sing this song. We do good in this world, not because the world applauds us, but because Jesus is the one that we fear. And as we move into chapter 4, the next thing Peter says is that we pursue God's will by preparing to suffer. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That word armed is a military term. It's saying you need to make appropriate preparations as you go into battle. As the saying goes, you don't turn up to a knife fight or a gunfight with a knife. You you have to be properly armed if you are going to fight well. And how do we prepare well? What are we arming ourselves with? Someone help me out. What are we arming ourselves with? The sufferings of Christ. I love to think of the glorious Christ, right? We're going to share in Christ's glory one day. Isn't that exciting? You and I are going to be part of the eternal kingdom that is going to reign forever and ever and ever. Praise God. But the way to that kingdom is through the road of suffering. We're going through the book of John's gospel at the moment at Eastside, and we've just seen Jesus wash his disciples' feet. And then he looks at the 12 and he says to them, one of you is going to betray me, and then he says to them, and now my glory is revealed. You're sitting there thinking, glory? You've just washed dirty, stinky feet. You've just told us that one of your closest followers is going to betray you. And then you say, and this is my glory. Yes, Christian. This side of eternity, it is our glory to share in the sufferings of Christ. Look at verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but 
for the will of God. Other translations will say no longer for human desires, but for the will of God. We live in a culture where your feelings and your desires, your passions, are like the highest authority. If you don't feel like doing something, if you don't desire to do something, well, it must be wrong. And I see this often as a pastor. God hasn't changed me, so I I feel like doing that. Well, God hasn't changed me, so I don't feel like stopping that. But as you know, your feelings are often wrong. Your feelings often do not line up with the will of God. And it is part of just a small suffering that we would say no to our feelings and our passions and desires, and we would say yes to living for the will of God. That is how we crown Jesus as Lord. You know, if you want to grow as a person who pleases the Lord, who does the will of God in this world, then it requires that you will say no to your passions and desires and yes to the will of God. Then he goes on in verse 3 and says, For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. The way the Gentiles lived was their former way of life. Peter is saying to them, Jesus has called you into a living hope. You are walking towards a day when you will have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil and fade. We're called to look forward to the great goal of our salvation. So don't keep on living like the Gentiles anymore. Who do we live like? We live like the children of God. One commentator writes this, We all came to Christ from different backgrounds. We all have a different story. Regardless, Peter says we have all spent enough time, too much time really, pursuing the will of man. By God's sovereign grace, we have been sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. Jesus has saved you from the penalty of your sin, absolutely, but he has saved you from so much more than that. He has redeemed you from empty ways of living that you might now come and live your life under the lordship of Jesus. There is a a dear man who became a Christian and was discipled at Eastside, and the day he was baptised, he said this. He said, my greatest disappointment is this, that it took me to this stage in my life, he was in his 50s, to come and meet Jesus. And the reason he was disappointed was this very reason here. He looked at his former ways of living and he was saying, I've wasted my life on things that are going to fade, that are going to pass away, if only I knew Jesus 
earlier. And Peter says that when you now live for the will of God, these Gentiles that clearly knew their pre-Christian days look at them and they're surprised. Why, why don't you keep living this way? Why don't you come and join us in the same patterns and the same rhythms of life? They're surprised. I think that's a, a wonderful question for us, do unbelievers look at your life with a measure of surprise? Ask yourself that question now. Do unbelievers look at your life and think, gee, you're a little bit odd, odd hopefully in a Christian kind of way? Do, do, do unbelievers, maybe your neighbours, family members who don't yet love the Lord, friends, people who knew you before you, did they look at your life and go, I don't understand, this just does not add up. See, if, if the answer is no, then you need to go back to the presupposition that you would be living for the will of God. It is living for the will of God that causes the surprise from those who don't yet know Jesus. They look at your life and think, isn't this perplexing? Why would you choose to live that way? And the reason they're surprised is because you live for the will of God and no longer for your passions, the will of man. And he goes on in verse 5 and says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. You and I can be content living for the will of God. Why? Because we know that there is a day coming when there will be judgment. A day when it really will matter what you've done for Jesus. And Peter says, this is why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Now, let's be clear, this is not justifying purgatory or praying for the dead. The gospel preached to people when they were alive, and now they are dead. Okay, get the order right. The gospel was preached to them when they were alive, then they died. The reality of death is speaking to the truth that there will be judgment in this world and those who have trusted in Jesus will stand with the righteousness of Christ. Who, who do we live for in this world? Well, Peter first says you do good because Christ is Lord. And then he says we live for the will of God as we arm ourselves with the same attitude as that of Christ. And then he continues on in this theme of the end of all things coming, and he urges us to be people that live 
faithfully in light of what? The end of all things. Read verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? We, as humans, are are motivated very much by goals, okay? I'm going to be very honest. As difficult as exam time is for students, they change your behaviour, right? Maybe I'm just a terrible student. As much as I bemoaned exam time, they were good for me. Because I knew that there was a reality check that was coming. I had to live in light of these exams that were coming because if I didn't, I can just assure you, I never would have gotten my assignments done. Maybe you're thinking that says more about you, Josh, than anything. But Peter is giving us a reality check. He's saying the end of all things is at hand. Uh, The end times, okay, uh, you can have a big debate about this, which I don't intend on doing now. But I think that the New Testament say Jesus lived in this earth, he died, he rose again, and he went back to the right hand of the Father. And between then and now, all of us are living in the end times. The day is drawing near when Jesus is going to return. And he's saying, what are you living in light of? Like, does, does that day drive you on? Does it, does it make you want to live more faithfully for Jesus? Does it make you want to go and declare the gospel to the nations? To tell your neighbours, your work colleagues, your friends, your family members that Jesus is the saving king? And, and notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, The end of all things is at hand. So go and search on the internet so you can find all kinds of wild theories about when that day will be. He doesn't say the the end of all things is near, so go and become a Christian prepper that stocks the cabinet ready for these final days. He doesn't say the end of all things is near, therefore go and panic. Okay? Like, even as a pastor, since things that have been going on in the Middle East in recent weeks, I've had people come to me and go, well, what do you think's going on in the world? And Peter would say, what? Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see that? Don't lose your mind. Be self-controlled. Self-controlled in what? Remembering that Jesus is the Lord and that he's trustworthy over all things. You know, when the the world loses its mind, who is in control? Jesus. When you turn on the six o'clock news and things are going crazy again, Jesus is in control. And I'm going to say this as someone who is a more anxious personality. When I'm anxious, do you know what I struggle with? It's a little word that starts with P and ends in Ray. Okay? And Peter knows it. Like when you're off losing your mind, you're anxious about everything going on in the world, I reckon the first thing that stops is reading the Word of God and being a person of prayer. 
And notice verse 7, it says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, don't lose your mind. Remember that Jesus, Lord, so that you can be a person of prayer, faithfully living for him. You know, 1 Peter doesn't talk as much about it as 2 Peter but Peter absolutely had a theology of the end times. This is 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Get this, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. But Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Then verse 8, above all, keep keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't it amazing that he's just flipped from talking about the end of all things Then he says, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, and then he says, love one another deeply and sincerely. If you look at chapter 2, the context for this faithful living, this loving one another type living is the local church. The temple of God being built together. Peter, I think, I think really, and I'm, I'm going out on a little limb here, I think what he's saying in these verses is that if you are going to live faithfully, you have to love your local church. You have to press in to the life of a local body because this side of eternity. Christians are made to be part of local churches. Why do I say this? Well, think about this. How can you love one another truly and sincerely and then fulfill the commands that we're going to look at in just a minute if you are not regularly committed to a gathering of believers? I I see this as a pastor. So take this love one another command If you aren't committed to a local church, and I take that you're here, that you are, but imagine this, you go, well, I don't really need to be part of a local church, so I'm going to go to this body of believers until I find it hard to love one another. And then I'm just going to go to another local church where I can start again and try to love one another again. No, it is in the context of a local church that this command actually gains life. Don't lose your mind, be a person of prayer, and press in to your local church. And I think what you see in verse 9, 10, and 11 is like the practical outworking of what this sincere love for one another should look like. What does it say? Look at verse 9 with me. Show hospitality to one another without what? Grumbling. 
I wonder how you go with that. See, he's just said, love one another sincerely, in a good measure, I think, as to whether you love your brothers and sisters sincerely, is whether you can show hospitality to your brothers and sisters, and at the end of it, maybe someone's overstayed. You know, like you invite someone around for lunch, and I don't know, you think two or three hours, and then five or six hours has passed, and you're thinking of miss watching the TV show I want to watch, or the kids need to get to bed. Are you grumbling at that point? It's just said, show hospitality without grumbling. What a challenge. And then he goes on into verse 9, uh, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God has gifted every single Christian with the ability to serve in the local church. Everyone is gifted by the grace of God. But you know, one of the biggest problems we have with this idea of gifts in the Aussie church is this. We think that gifts are about us. Look at me, I've got this wonderful gift so that I can serve in my way, on my terms, in a way that seems right to me, but Peter says here, no, use your gifts, whatever gifts it might be, to bless the socks off your local church family. And and he goes on and gives a very practical example, verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of grace, whoever serves, one who serves by the strength of God. Basically, He's divided the gifts, the spiritual gifts, into two types, the gifts of speaking and proclaiming, and the gifts of serving. And he's saying, whatever is your gift, do it to be a blessing to the local church family. So remember the context. He says, the end of all things is near, but don't let your brain blow up. Be a person of prayer and then press in to your local church family. And then he finishes off in verse 11. And he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know that Hertford Street Baptist Church has everything it needs right here to function effectively for the glory of Jesus. He promises, Jesus promises that he will gift the church with what it needs so that it can fulfill that task to bring glory to Jesus, okay? I want you to take a look at one another. Turn around, take a look around. I get this is a little bit odd. Look around. Hertford Street Baptist has everything that it needs to function effectively for the glory of Jesus if... You are prepared to love one another sincerely, faithfully show hospitality, and use your gifts, not for yourself, but for the glory of Jesus. Josh is not here today. Well, I'm Josh, but not the Josh here. (laughs) What would it look like you know, he comes back from holidays. 
Josh has not said anything to me, okay? I'm not delivering some hard message here. To just blow his mind with this idea that people are just bursting at the seams to serve one another here at Hertford Street Baptist Church. You've got your QGM come out. You've got more people nominating to serve in different capacities. Let's be clear. Serving is not just about formal roles. When, when you turn up to church here on Sundays, you're there to be a blessing to one another. You're looking around at the end, not going, who are the friends that I want to chat to today, but who can I be an encouragement today? Who's the new person that I can welcome into my, my home? Who can I give a text message this week? Who can I write a card to? There's some beautiful elderly ladies in our church that love to write cards. Everyone who has a birthday gets a card. Isn't it a wonderful thing when you get a handwritten card? Who can I notice as not here today that I might serve this week? And don't do it to fill rosters. Do it because you are driven by the glory of Jesus. So here's where we finish. Peter's been showing us what it looks like to do good works because we have been given new birth into a living hope. And the question is this, is Jesus the centre of your life? I think we get and we love what's gone on in the early chapters of 1 Peter. A new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that never will perish, spoil and fade. But Peter stepped on from that. He said, it's such a wonderful thing that you, you have this. Now, be holy because I'm holy. That word holy means live distinctly. Live with Jesus as the Lord of your life. And Peter's now saying to each and every one of us, is Jesus the one that is right at the center of your life? Are you doing good, not because the world is applauding, but because you revere him as Lord of your life? Are you choosing to live your life day by day by day? Because you know that just as Christ suffered, so too should you. And are you living your life knowing that, yep, the end of all things is near? Well, let's not go crazy. Let's live faithfully for Jesus, seeking his glory in all things. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be the children of God, to have new birth into a living hope. But Father, this new birth calls us to be your children, to live distinctly for you in this world. Father, would you help us to work this out? That Father, as Peter finishes this passage, that we too might confidently say that we are living for the glory of the Lord Jesus, the one whose kingdom and dominion has no end. Father, make that so by the work of your spirit within us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.